Prepare for crash. Mayday, mayday. Hitters field. Mayday, we're going down. Leon, can you hear me? Lieutenant, can you see Leon? Leon! Well, sunny beaches of South Florida. Welcome to the internationally loved and true storytelling podcast, Family History Drama. Did you know that true stories well told can inspire, caution, entertain, and instruct? If you can make history personal, you can make it actionable. Now sit back and enjoy another immersive audio family history story that is almost too true to be believed on the Family History Drama Podcast. Well, here's a quick recap from part one of this miraculous story. Howard Leon Wetton was born on a dairy farm in southern Arizona. He lived in Old Mexico for most of his young and adolescent life and then returned to New Mexico where he does backbreaking work for $2 a day. He graduates high school at age 23, takes over as breadwinner for the household after his father's final disabling head injury. Pearl Harbor is attacked. Thousands of young men and women flock to join in the war effort. Howard's farm employer acquires a war deferment for him. His father encourages Howard to give up his comforts and serve his country, as do the majority of his siblings. His father gives him a blessing, promising protection if he kept his promises to God, and admonished Howard not to hate his enemies. Howard trains as a tail gunner on the B-24 bomber because he was smaller in stature and could fit into the tail of the plane. Well, now, to continue with the story, the B-24 bomber was not a marvel of aeronautical engineering. There was no time for that. It was a mass-produced, heavy-capacity bomb-hauling machine. As far as maneuvering went, it was described as tougher than a $2 steak by 40th Bomb Group pilot Keith Mason. When it comes to flight stability, eh, marginal at best. One crewman said, you don't know what crap hitting the fan means till you've seen a Liberator flip over on its side in the middle of a 40-plane formation. That old metallic albatross would float like a lead balloon once the pilot and co-pilot let go of the controls, so any escape from a stricken machine was extremely difficult. Survivability in a crash? It was not so fondly labeled as the flying coffin, according to the pilots and crew. Speaking of survivability, the saying goes that science advances one funeral at a time. Well, in World War II, bomber survivorship advanced one missing bomber at a time. Well, let me explain how that kind of deduction is possible. There's a fire number four. During the war, bomber planes would come back from battle riddled with bullet holes. A statistical research group at Columbia University was asked to study the areas most commonly hit by enemy fire. Then, out of habit, 
They sought to strengthen those damaged parts to minimize bomber losses to enemy fire. It seems straightforward thinking to most. Yet, in this research group was a Polish immigrant and Jewish mathematician by the name of Abraham Wald. Wald had recently fled to the United States. Since Wald was technically considered an enemy alien after his immigration from Eastern Europe, his status was a bit unusual. There was a running joke in the research group that Wald's secretaries had to snatch his notes and essays out of his hands as soon as he was finished writing them because he didn't have the proper security clearance to read his own work. As the research group mulled over how to sensibly distribute the added armor to the areas of heaviest hits, it was this Abraham Wald who pointed out from his examination of a survivorship bias theory that there was potentially a different way to look at it, or beyond it, beyond the data, that is. What are those planes that are not available for statistical inspection because they did not return? Perhaps the reason certain areas of the survivor planes aren't covered in bullet holes is that planes that are shot in those areas gave the ultimate sacrifice for their country. We are only inspecting the bomber planes that come back from battle. What of those that don't? Wald derived a useful means of estimating the damage distribution for all aircraft that flew from the data on the damage distribution of all aircraft that returned. This revelatory insight led to the armor being reinforced on the parts of the plane where there were no bullet holes. Mind-blowing, right? The story behind the data is arguably more important than the data itself. As Russell Brunson would say, failure is data. And in order to see the failure, sometimes we have to consider the missing data. March 24, 1943, eight months after his intensive training began, Howard Leon Whetton was sent to the South Pacific, where he served in the Army Air Corps on Guadalcanal and other islands. Their mission? Well, simply put, it was dropping bombs on Japanese ships. Now, if you recall the Admiral Aisuroku Yamamoto, in the previous episode. He was the strategist responsible for planning and the execution of the attack on Pearl Harbor. Well, it just so happens that on April 14th, just three weeks after Howard had landed at Henderson Field on the Guadalcanal, the U.S. naval intelligence effort, codenamed MAGIC, intercepted and decrypted orders alerting affected Japanese units of a tour Admiral Yamamoto's transport plane, which was a G4M1 Betty, would be traveling from one island to another for inspection. The U.S. military saw this as a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to eliminate the mastermind behind the attack on Pearl Harbor. The mission, hailed as the longest intercept mission of World War II, was about 500 miles northwest of Guadalcanal. 
Mission Vengeance was put into play on April 18, 1943, as a squadron of 18 P-38G Lightnings launched an intercept attack from Cuckham Field on Guadalcanal. Yamamoto's plane was hit by bursts of cannon and machine gun fire, forcing it to go down in an explosive impact in the jungles of Bougainville Island. Cuckum Airfield remained operational after the war as a civilian airfield until 1969. The airfield eventually was transformed into the Honiara Golf Course. Make par, not war. Howard spent a good amount of time at a runway that had previously been captured from the Japanese and then renamed Henderson Airfield. During his years of service, he and the crew made several, um, well, several of what the airmen fondly and sarcastically referred to as water landings, which means that their plane went down, involuntarily, into the ocean. And if they survived for long enough and could be found, then they were rescued. Howard Leon Wetton felt that his life was miraculously spared numerous times, and in the recollection of the following occasion is a complex miracle from many directions that spared his life. The air base at Lunga Point on the Guadalcanal Solomon Islands was captured from the Japanese by U.S. Marines on the 8th of August, 1942 just a month after its construction had begun. Shortly thereafter, it was named Henderson Field, and it became the closest airfield to the area of Japanese occupation. It was such a great strategic location that the Japanese tried numerous times over the following year to retake the airbase. It was a pivotal location for the United States and its allies during the war, and is now the location of Honiara International Airport. The average air temperatures around the Solomon Islands in mid-June are a high of 87 degrees Fahrenheit and a nighttime low of 73. Now, that average only applies to ground level. It's always colder at high altitudes, summer and winter. Temperature reduces with altitude by 10 degrees Fahrenheit every 3,000 feet they climb. Thus, at 10,000 feet, where airmen usually require supplementary oxygen, it's usually freezing. With Solomon Island's ground level temperatures at 80 plus, temperatures at 20,000 feet altitude will be at a standard temperature of negative 24.6 Celsius or negative 12.3 Fahrenheit. There is no HVAC system in the B-24. There are no pressurized cockpits. Some positions are colder than others, but no one is quote unquote comfortable. In addition, because the plane is so mass produced, the fuel lines run inside the occupied bomber areas where there is a consistent smell of engine fuel. <laughs> 
Although it could rarely be seen through the overcast sky, the moon was nearly wax full on that Wednesday evening of the 16th of June, 1943. In excess of 300 Allied aircraft were currently stationed at the base. Dear Heavenly Father, please watch over us tonight. You in there? We gotta go. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Just saying a prayer before we go. It's not bedtime, Whitten. It's go time. Absolutely. I just wanted to invite the most important member of the crew to be with us tonight. I hear that, Whitten. Say, I hear you as a Mormon. Yeah, that that's a nickname, actually. We prefer the Church of Jesus Christ Latter-day Saints. Hey, that reminds me. Do you know how Mormons make holy water? No idea. We, we boil the hell out of it. <laughs> <laughs> you are a riot, Wetton. I just hope your aim tonight is as sharp as your wit. Howard had been anxious all day in preparation for his first bombing mission. His bomber and crew would be the last to take off, and it was just after 6 p.m. that evening and nearly sundown by the time they got into the air. Obvious strategy found it better to bomb the enemy targets at night so that the bombers wouldn't be as vulnerable to enemy fighters and anti-aircraft artillery. Now, I am not part of this B-24 Liberator bomber's 10-man crew, so I'm going to let Howard Leon Wetton tell you the rest of his story. Hello there. Can you hear me okay? I guess you gathered the gist of what got me to here. It's been wet and sometimes miserable. We don't get this kind of precipitation back home in New Mexico. Oh, and just so you know, I'm Leon now. Howard was my younger years. Let me introduce you to the crew. There's our pilot, Second Lieutenant Lord. Second Lieutenant Radford is his co-pilot. As navigator, we have Second Lieutenant Rourke. Our bombardier is Second Lieutenant Potter. Ed Simic is the engineer and the nose turret gunner. He's on the opposite end of the plane as I am. Our radio operator is Robert Chapman. We just call him Chappie. Claude Myers and Harold Ewing are side gunners. Right, Kenneth Wynnum is an additional gunner. And the assistant radio operator and tail gunner, well, that's me, Howard Leon Wetton. Like I say, I go by Leon now. We haven't been up here very long. It seems that we've hit an electrical storm. Seem to have lost the radios as well. The system shorts itself out quite easily to protect some of the more susceptible items. Like the gray matter between our headsets? Yeah, nobody wants to be jolted like Frankenstein at this altitude. You know, from where I'm sitting, there's a tail gunner. I can see a streaking trail of static electricity just streaming out behind us. It's quite a phenomenal sight. talking to back here oh just sharing this journey on a podcast a pod what uh, a 
podcast? It's kind of like a radio program, something better. You know, like Orson Welles or Jack Benny on the Jello program. Or even that new Pepsodent show with that young guy. What's his name? Bob Hope? You know, Chappie, if you live long enough, you just might find out what a podcast is. Well, Wetton, as eager as I am to repeat this dark night over the ocean, you and I will just have to wait to relive this moment we are currently living in. Now I'm confused. Anyhow, Lieutenant Lord said it was safe now to hook the radios back up. Well, just for communication between us. And I need your help, Bob. I mean, Jack. Ah, good grab. Leon, let's go. Uh, Lord? Radford? Can you hear me now? The radios seem to be working again. Um, <clears throat> well, I can't find our target. It's pitch black except for the lightning. We've been wandering around for hours. I can't tell where we are or what direction we're supposed to be going. We're getting low on gas, Radford. Bombardier Potter, open them Bombay doors and drop all the bombs to lighten our load. Uh, negative, Lord. There's no electricity. I bet we can cherry rig something, Potter. You're the engineer, Simwick. You work your magic. Let, let's work on his hand crank. That should open the bay doors. There, see? Uh, l- Lieutenant Lord, we got them doors open, but we can't move them bombs without electricity. I mean, even if we did get it partway out and it arms itself before we can push it out, well, we gotta do that a dozen times or more. Copy that, Potter. All right, close the bay doors, and we'll try something else. Yeah, um, that's the problem. The doors are jammed open now. They're not going to close. Well, Radford, we are just about out of gas. The bomb bay doors are stuck open. We have no radio to tell anyone of our position. We got no instruments to even know our position. It's near midnight, pitch black. I can't see any sign of land. Heck, I can't even tell what direction we're going. Bingo, bingo. Get ready for a wonderland, boys. Wait, what? Land on water? We ain't ducks, and this ain't no pig boat. Did, did the moon magically transform our B-24 into a seaplane? Or are we about to swim like rocks? You know, Lieutenant Lord, when my pappy gave me swimming lessons as a kid, he took the boat out to the middle of the lake and just threw me overboard. It wasn't so bad after I got out of the gunny sack. Well, we're about to find out if you remember how to get out of that burlap, Lieutenant Potter. I, I guess this is where you tell us to put our seat backs and tray tables in their upright and locked positions. Mayday, mayday. Going down. I gotta tell you, water landing does not sound good. I'm sitting here in this open tail turret with a flexible 50 caliber machine gun between my legs. I have a large, heavy nylon strap 
about a foot wide, holding me in the plane. A few seconds ago, I didn't feel comfortable, but I did feel secure. Now I feel like it's tethered me to a mill's goat. I don't know if or how fast I'll be able to unbuckle these three smaller straps around this safety contraption. Well, they're a bugger to undo, even after a flight, while on a stable, solid airstrip. Now, I I'm not worried about falling out. I'm concerned about getting out. And on top of all that, I'm wearing a flight suit, which is pants, coat, hat, boots, and gloves, all of which are made from the wool sheepskin turned inside to keep us warm when we're flying at high altitudes, which we just were. Warm, yeah, but they do warm reasonably. But wet? Oh, gosh. Swimming in a pair of Levi's is hard enough. This is not going to be fun. Mayday, mayday. Going down. Please, please, Heavenly Father, I can't get these straps undone. The tail is going underwater. I need your protection and your help, please. Dive, Leon. Dive quickly into the rising water. And go down until you get under the sinking tail and then come up to the surface. Whoa, how could a strap just break like that? Are you okay? No, Lieutenant Lord. I think my legs are broken. Ewing, shine your light over that way. Good heaven. That impact split the plane in half. Look there. The tail section. It's tipped upright and going straight under. Did Leon get out of that tail's gunner position? Ewing, can you see Wetton? No, Lieutenant, I can't see him. Leon! 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 As I stated in part one of this story, sharing an account from someone I personally knew is a rare treat. You don't want to miss the conclusion of Leon's personal account woven into this part of some of our world's most pivotal history moments. Please join me in the next episode for part three of this story as Leon stares into the face of death. And the miracles begin to stack up like a, well, like a plate full of hot, fluffy, crispy edge pancakes. Mmm. See ya. Hi, are you still there? Remember to download the Family Tree app and see how you are related to the people from today's episode. All those links will be included in the show notes. Sometimes it's important to look a gift horse in the mouth. Your gift is your ancestry. Your superpower is their family history stories that make you.
Not a one of us crawled out from under a rock, regardless of what you've been told. You have 4,094 grandparents, over 12 generations, with thousands of love stories, battles, difficulties, sadness, happiness, and expressions of hope for the future that allows you to be here today. We are the culmination of so many things we did not choose. It was designed that way. So be gentle with yourself and others. Take the time to learn yourself through your family history stories. There are innumerable tributaries flowing into the life experience that deceptively seems to be your own, but it's not. So think about that as you row, row, row your boat gently down the stream. Russell M. Nelson stated, When our hearts turn to our ancestors, something changes inside us. We feel part of something greater than ourselves. (laughs) I concur. Thank you for joining me on another unbelievably true adventure. Find your family history superpower and activate it. Until the next time, bye.